DW Living Planet with Sam Baker. Hello and welcome to Living Planet. Today on the show, how refugees are creating their own green spaces and helping reverse desertification. When we came here, there was no tree. We are only healthy skelter to look for shade. Sometimes we go to neighbor village to go and, you know, have a rest before the sunset. You know, we said we have to plant a tree. Uganda tries to deal with an influx of counterfeit electronics that are creating an e-waste pileup. Many of our customers come in here with faulty batteries, batteries that have expanded, about to explode, like it lasts for a minute or 30 minutes. Others come in with unresponsive screens, faulty mouthpiece. There are phones that come beyond repair. Those ones, we just give up on them. And we discuss the promise and pitfalls of compostable packaging. Oh, it definitely gets confusing for consumers and it sometimes don't really communicate whether it's an at-home compostable or it's an industrial compostable, which often leads to many consumers expecting a plastic compostable cup to just disintegrate um, fully in their garden. That's all coming up here on Living Planet. Stay tuned. E-waste is an environmental problem many of us fret about. What do we do with those old electronics that no longer work? It's estimated that more than 57 million tons of e-waste was generated globally in 2021. And in Uganda, one specific issue is accelerating this problem. The rampant importation of counterfeit electronics, especially mobile phones. These cheap knockoffs have a very short lifespan, quickly finding their way into landfills. But they are also much more affordable than some name brands and are therefore quite appealing to consumers. When devices like these get thrown out, though, they can contaminate the environment and in doing so impact human health. Experts also warn that these counterfeit phones can be easily hacked into because they haven't been tested for adherence to international cybersecurity standards. In light of all this, the country's telecom regulator, the Uganda Communications Commission, has announced it will switch off over 6 million fake phones that are currently being used on networks across the country. These gadgets will be disconnected through local telecommunications providers after a months-long public awareness campaign. Frank Yiga brings us more on that effort and the environmental consequences of these faulty electronics. When I heard about the campaign by the Uganda Communications Commission to educate the public through radio and TV shows about fake mobile phones before switching them off, I went to Makere University in the capital Kampala to find out how many people owned a mobile phone they suspected to be fake. One student, Maureen Babidie, told me about her ordeal when she received an online advert with special offers like buy one, get one free on electronics. When I got the phone, oh my goodness, just locating Bluetooth was a problem. First of all, it was so hard. They'd show 8GB and you're working with 4GB at this point. It's so disappointing, but you can't get refunds because these people don't even have an office where you find them, a shop. It also freezes, by the way. You cannot be on TikTok and have background data running. It's crazy. It's going to freeze. Never again. The government's decision to disconnect 6 million mobile phones from the local network has also reached Kathleen Shimye, 
whom I met on the busy downtown street in Kampala capital. She tells me she bought her phone cheaply and is aware it is not genuine because of its malfunction. Many of us don't actually have the money to go and buy those nice authentic phones. We don't. And most of the times we find that they're actually fake. They get spare parts from other phones and just combine and then they give you an iPhone, let's say. And uh, I'm sure very many of us are just going to be off <laughs> completely. We are doomed. It is estimated that one in every five mobile devices shipped is illegitimate, affecting genuine manufacturers, economies, and threatening the environment if they are poorly disposed of. There is no clear law against importation and sale of counterfeit products in Uganda, but the government plans to review the existing laws to see how they might be able to cut down on this practice. Counterfeit electronic gadgets are a global phenomenon. The highest number of sales of these counterfeit gadgets is reported to be in Africa, Latin America and the Middle East. The European Union Intellectual Property Office estimates that phone manufacturers lost up to $40 billion to illegitimate phones. The Uganda Communication Commission Head of Public and International Affairs, Rebecca Mokite, said legitimate mobile devices are those with genuine serial numbers called the International Mobile Equipment Identity, or IMEs. You should be able to buy your mobile phone from wherever, and it works. The people who manufacture illegitimate phones assign them IMEs, but sometimes they forge them, sometimes they steal IMEs of other genuine devices and clone them. So you find that you have like a Samsung, but when you test its IME, it belongs to an ITEL. And that's what our verification process helps consumers to do. Rebecca said such phones have a short lifespan of usually not more than six months. I went to Patrick Chisike's phone repairs workshop in Chirika Trading Center to find out the common technical faults faced by his clients. Many of our customers come in here with faulty batteries, batteries that have expanded, about to explode, like it lasts for a minute or 30 minutes. Others come in with unresponsive screens, faulty mouthpiece and the earpiece. Then the network coverage, there are phones that come beyond repair. They don't have spare boards. Those ones, we just give up on them. The poor disposal of phones is a concern among experts. When Patrick told me he didn't have a clue where and how the electronic waste from his phone repair workshop was disposed of by the garbage collectors who pick it up each week, I went to Makere University's School of Forestry, Environment and Geographical Sciences to speak to Dr. Joel Chinobi a researcher in solid waste management. These are all corporates that come into Uganda, but actually... He explained to me how the different metals and chemicals used in the manufacture of phones harm the natural environment if they are not properly disposed of. Joel said the dangers might worsen if the 6 million illegitimate phones are switched off. This is a battery. You see clearly, it has a cross sign, meaning that it shouldn't be dumped into a dustbin. It should be handled very well. But what happens in Uganda, who knows all this? There are some components, cadmium, mercury, lithium, sulfur is in, quite a, a number of components and elements made of uh, toxic substances. Eh? 
they react with the organic component and actually ends up contaminating underground water, surface water and that flows into the lake, into fresh water. You end up getting uh, diseases. Eh? Dr. Abraham Mwesije is a researcher in toxicology and contaminants in soil, water and foods at Makere University. They have studied how Chitezi landfills by-products flow in Lake Victoria in the outskirts of Kampala capital. And their risk assessments have linked various diseases to metals from electronics. Mercury is well known to cause mental disturbance, impotence, early aging. If you go to zinc, copper, iron, they will cause stomach complications, these ulcers. And then also respiratory, because some of them end up in the lungs and corrupt the system. The worst case includes lead and arsenic. They are highly used, and we found them in the Chitez landfill. Those ones cause cancer. Some of them have no known function, like cobalt enters your body. Your body can't use it, so it will end up stimulating some abnormal body functions. Dr. Abraham tells me that all electronics, whether genuine or illegitimate, can be harmful if they are wrongly disposed of. However, he says, the counterfeit variety are like a double-edged sword to the environment and public health. The difference with fake phones, they increase the quantity of phones being thrown in the environment. When a metal dissolves, it's like sugar in water. If you fetch that water, you're drinking the metals. If the water goes into the gardens, the crops will take those metals as they grow. We've sampled water from the west, which we call Lichet, and tested the water which flows to Lake Victoria. We found elements which can only be found in electronics. So when you dump there the old phones with the metals, the old TVs with metals or computer, gases are coming from the environment or landfills. These are acidic gases. When it rains, the gases will mix with water. So it gets into the scrap which is dumped there as computer motherboards, as telephone motherboards. The situation has been worsened by lack of technology to recycle electronic waste and effective mechanisms to collect the garbage. Tony Achidria, the communications officer at the National Environmental Management Authority, said that Uganda has no formal processes of collecting the e-waste. But following a UN report that highlighted the magnitude of this problem, the government pledged to procure equipment to collect, sort, and recycle the electronic waste across the country to save the environment and people from chemical contamination. The figures that we were privy to were the amount of electronic equipment that was coming into the country. But uh, we are not seeing where uh, you know, the waste is going after they have reached their end of life. By 2020, according to the Global E-Waste Monitor by the United Nations, the e-waste generated in Uganda was estimated at about uh, 17,000 tons with a projection of uh, 45,000 tons by 2023-2024. Isa Sechito, the chairman of City Traders Association, said that people have been exposed to these dangers because the illegitimate phones have been in existence in Uganda for over 10 years. He told me they welcomed the decision to get rid of fake mobile phones, but the government 
needs to come up with clear strategies to protect the traders, consumers and the environment. Who is going to compensate the customers that are already connected and are using these phones? How about those that are still in the stalls, in the counters? This is a policy defect. <laughs> we need to be serious on how we dispose of these electronic gadgets, not only this. As an intervention to mitigate the health and environmental impacts, the government launched the first e-waste management center in 2021, which currently collects and sorts electronic waste. For DW, I am Frank Yiga from Kampala, Uganda. This is Living Planet. I'm Sam Baker. Another waste stream that's been overflowing in recent decades is that of plastic pollution. As places like Kenya, Bangladesh, and the European Union have banned various forms of single-use plastic, different types of compostable packaging have come in to fill their void. But this world of compostable packaging can be confusing, and it doesn't always lead to its intended consequences of packaging being returned to the soil. So to help me break down this muddy world of compostable packaging, I recently spoke with Sarah Laidler, senior consultant at the organization Carbon Trust. I started out by asking her to explain what exactly compostable packaging is. Well, compostable packaging is basically anything that can be returned to the earth in a specific amount of time. Um, And that can either be done in a home composting environment or can be done in an industrial composting environment. So how exactly do these substances break down? You mentioned industrial processes. How does that work? So they break down um, into basically carbon dioxide, water, biomass within that sort of overall time frame, but it's under really specific conditions. For instance, the example that I give for home compostable, that can be like ambient temperatures with like a natural microbial community. So anything that exists in soil really. But on the other hand, like the industrial compostable, it has to have much more increased temperatures, for instance, humidity and specifically formulated um, microbial conditions as well for that to properly break down. Okay. And with these different ways of composting these materials, are they clearly marked as to which type each sort of packaging is? Or is this something that gets kind of confusing for consumers? Well, it definitely gets confusing for consumers. And it sometimes don't really communicate whether it's an at-home compostable or it's an industrial compostable, which often leads to many consumers expecting a plastic compostable cup to just disintegrate um, fully in their garden, um, which just won't happen. What does this sort of industrial composting look like and what does it require in terms of energy? It normally can be much more energy intensive than your typical recycling or your typical reuse environment. The emissions associated with that can have much higher environmental impacts than non-compostable alternatives. But it's not really an excuse not to maybe explore how compostables can fit into a circular economy. I mean, we're in a plastic pollution crisis as it is. We know even today with, let's say, plastic recycling, for example, a lot of that ends up being incinerated or going to landfill anyway, despite sometimes consumers' best intentions. Are there issues in terms of compostable packaging going to landfill anyway? And what sort of problems does that produce? 
the industrial composting facilities are not widespread at the minute at all. Like, for instance, in the US, there's fewer than 100 plants capable of processing sort of certified compostable packaging as well. Plus, then also you've got to think about the transporting materials to the right plant increases the overall carbon footprint of that. So you need to take into account how widespread this actually is. I think also in the UK, one in 400 takeaway coffee cups, whether they're compostable or not, are actually appropriately dealt with in a processing facility. So even if you sort of change it to be compostable, you are also addressing the fact that there's a wider infrastructure problem of actually dealing with waste. So they have to think what's the best way of communicating that to the end consumer. If it's going to end up in their normal mainstream waste system, can where I'm selling this product actually support the amount of product waste that I'm going to be putting on the market? Or is it going to be better if it's a home composting packaging where the consumer can actually deal with it in their own back garden? Compostable packaging can take years to sort of biodegrade. And then it also re-releases the harmful methane emissions um, like food waste also does. I was reading a study that this sort of packaging reached almost $20 billion in 2022 and it's expected to grow with the Asia Pacific region being the fastest growth area. You're based in Singapore. I'm curious, how much compostable packaging do you see on a daily basis and, and how is it dealt with there? Packaging is is everywhere and it's the same in the UK as well. We, we are using an excess of it, but definitely in some key outlets, there is more use of compostable packaging. But normally, I mean, it's in my experience is that when that compostable packaging is used, I'll take it back to my office and I'll put it in the normal waste bin. In that scenario, the infrastructure isn't really helping that at all because that compostable packaging that I've used and that the organization has converted to to make sure they use more bio-based materials and that can break down. I have no idea if that's going to an industrial composting facility. So that's what I mean, that compostables are a viable solution to help with packaging and to make sure that we harness the resources for that natural recycling process to incur but it's got to exist in the right systems to get the full benefit of it. And it can't just be done as a sort of a plaster over a gaping wound to sort of make sure that we address the problem. So when it comes to businesses wanting to be greener, wanting to do the right thing, how should they think about this? And how can they help to reduce this waste overall? The first thing they should look at when considering like packaging or perhaps considering the waste that they're producing is how can they prevent it in the first place? That's going to give you the most environmental benefit across all the different um, capacities that you're looking at. So for instance, your carbon emissions won't exist if your waste isn't there in the first place. And also the, the pollution associated with your waste won't exist if it's not there in the first place. So that's the first step. Um, then if you if your packaging does exist, you have to understand sort of what system is it in. So the example that I could use for that is, for instance, like a closed loop system. So if you have um, a food vendor that's at a festival or a sporting event, for instance, and if that exists as a waste stream for that event, things like um, your food waste, your food scraps can be put in with the compostable packaging that's ready for industrial composting in one waste stream. So therefore, you're offsetting all the problems that you'd normally get if it's in sort of a widespread waste um, environment so you wouldn't have to split out recycling or split out contaminated materials things like that so really understanding what system you're bringing this packaging in works mm. 
And we have seen certain kind of big moves towards this packaging in recent years with countries banning single-use plastics that aren't compostable. But in the kind of global view of things, what's the scale of this type of packaging? And does it make a dent in how much packaging we're using and throwing away each year? I mean, the way that the compostables is spread across the world now, there's it's not replacing the majority of the plastic that we have. And I don't think it should because I think we need to think more as the materials that we're using for compostable packaging or even plastic packaging, they're resources and we need to recapture that within a circular system. But the infrastructure to support compostable packaging isn't widespread and therefore using compostable packaging on a wider scale also isn't widespread either. But what really needs to sort of happen to address the overall sort of packaging crisis that we have is overall reduction where packaging is not needed or necessary. It shouldn't exist and that will inherently save emissions and also the waste that comes with packaging. That was Sarah Laidler from the organization Carbon Trust. Next, we head to Cameroon, where in the country's far north, the Minnawau refugee camp is turning green. With over 500,000 trees planted, the otherwise parched landscape is bustling with vegetation. It's the handiwork of some 75,000 Nigerian refugees who fled Boko Haram in their country more than 10 years ago, finding refuge here in Cameroon. They say the trees are not only providing them with the necessary shelter amid the region's sweltering heat, but that they're also improving the air quality there. Environmentalists say it is a significant step in advancing the Great Green Wall of Africa, an initiative designed to stop desertification of the semi-arid Sahel region. Kilian Nagala has more on the ground from Cameroon, and his report is presented by Inika Mules. A rooster crows. Dawn is breaking at the Minawau refugee camp in northern Cameroon. The aroma of cooking fills the air as a woman turns porridge yam in an aluminium pot. Luca Isaac, shovel in hand, sets out to work. He is one of 75,000 Nigerian refugees who fled Boko Haram violence from Nigeria to settle at the camp in 2013. Luca drills a hole to plant a tree. It's an initiative the refugees took on when the first arrivals came to the 1,500-acre camp located 70 kilometers from the Nigerian border. When we came here, there was no tree. We are only held skelter to look for shade. Sometimes we go to neighbor village to go and, you know, have a rest before the sunset. You know, we said we have to plant a tree. We started the initiating. We put the uh, seedlings and uh, it germinates. We started planting trees on our own uh, before they said, if this is the way, we can assist you. They provide more trees and uh, we planted the trees and now we have shade. Initially, Luca Isaac and others would fetch water morning and evening from a nearby borehole to irrigate the trees to give them a chance of survival in the arid climate. But the UNHCR and two other NGOs stepped in with another system, one that requires less care and maintenance. Kimberly Robertson is the head of the UNHCR office in Maurer. 
Underneath the ground, there is a, a cardboard sort of donut, and it's filled with water, and it's enough water so the trees can make it to the next rainy season. And then in the camp, there's lots of activities in terms of greening and rehabilitation. So some of it is replacing trees that have been damaged, but also just new trees, creating an environment that's a little bit greener. A greener environment that the refugees say has made their lives in the camp significantly better, even as they continue to struggle with basic issues of sustenance, such as getting enough food, water, clothing and health care. Environment with trees is very, very good. You know, even the air we breathe is very good, clean, and uh, we have shelters. In fact, really, we are happy with uh, our environment because if you go to the neighbor villages, they don't have trees like the refugees. So we are proud to, to, to plant more trees. We have uh, fruit trees that have been given this year. I think we are going to plant more fruit trees. So far, some 500,000 trees are now standing tall in and around the camp. Thanks to the Making Minawal Green Again initiative, says Abel Samading. He's the Environment and Energy Officer at the French development NGO ADES, which currently runs the reforestation project. The project fits the template of the Great Green Wall of Africa, an African Union initiative started in 2007 to revitalise the Sahel region, which is a huge expanse of semi-arid land connecting the desert of northern Africa to the fertile regions of the south. The project wants to grow an 8,000-kilometre-long line of trees and plants across the entire Sahel, from the Atlantic coast of Senegal to the east coast of Djibouti, to stop desertification, which is a process driven by droughts, climate change and human activity that dries out the land beyond what's healthy, leading to the loss of soil fertility and vegetation. It renders 12 million hectares of land less productive every year, which affects 1.5 billion people worldwide and leads to lost earnings from agriculture, amounting to 42 billion US dollars annually. These realities could worsen across the Sahel, with the region's population projected to jump from 83.7 million in 2019 to 196 million by 2050. Elvis Tangem, the man in charge of the Green Wall Initiative, says greening the entire Sahel could also potentially scale down conflicts, the very reason Luca Isaac and thousands of other Nigerian refugees have had to flee their home countries. Climate change is one of the biggest multipliers for insecurity because what has climate change done? Erosion, desertification, floods. You know our population, 70% to 80% still depend on rain-fed agriculture and the natural environment for income generation and livelihood. So when plants are dry up, fodder crops are cleared off, rangelands are no longer yielding, agriculture is no longer giving, Lake Chad and other water bodies are drying up or are overflowing. That is the main causes of conflict. The project does have its critics, who say it's not properly funded and doesn't have enough oversight to ensure its success. For instance, planting trees in areas with no inhabitants to look after them has been a recipe for disaster. In the early days of the project, 80% of trees withered and died within two months of planting because they lacked water, protection and care. And just as climate change worsens the security situation across the Sahel, so too does insecurity make it harder to make the Great Green Wall a living reality. I used to work in Mali, in Niger. I had programs in Banjagara, in the Dogon, in Timbuktu, Duanza, in Segu. Today I cannot go there. 
He cannot go to those areas because of conflict, and that means the land restoration and reforestation programs there have been abandoned. Tangem says nearly 18% of the initial target of about 100 million hectares of land that had to be restored by 2030 had been achieved. But according to an official status report, only 4% had been restored as of 2020. Still, the project has evolved from simply planting trees to becoming a combination of land management strategies to help tackle climate change and support a booming population. Here we mean that activities like forestry, agroforestry, land management, climate smart agriculture, water management, renewable energy, pastoral livestock. So the Great Wilderness became an integrated uh, mosaic of various sustainable land management and restoration initiatives. He says meeting the 2030 target could mean creating 10 million decent jobs, sequestering 250 million tons of carbon, and ultimately generating more than 3.5 billion US dollars in wealth. But for that to happen, about 230 million acres of land will need to be restored over the next seven years. Back at the Minowau refugee camp, Luca Isaac is still leading thousands of other refugees to plant trees in what looks like one sustainable way out of the climate emergency that continues to fester across the Sahel. And with that, we come to the end of another Living Planet. Thanks for joining us today. If you enjoyed this show, please do suggest it to a friend, a colleague, or a family member, or you can leave us a rating or review on your favorite podcasting app. Thanks this week to Vipka Taktmeyer and Gerd Georgi in the studio. I'm Sam Baker. We'll be back next week with more environment stories from around the globe.